5: To get the Crime Writers on After Show right now, go to patreon.com slash partners in crime media.
2: This episode is sponsored by The Score, bank robber diaries from ACAST Studios and Western Sound. It's a brand new podcast. It's a true crime told from the criminal's point of view. Get up close and personal with a real bank robber named Joe Loya, who robbed... 50 banks follow his life's arc from being an abused kid to a petty criminal to a con an ex-con a writer and a father and finally a reconciled son and learn some trade secrets along the way search for the score bank robber diaries in your favorite podcast app and check out the first episode which is out right now today hit subscribe so you don't miss new episodes I'm Rebecca Lavoy and this is Crime Writers On, the original true crime review podcast that digs into true crime, pop culture, other podcasts, and this week we are on the hunt for a killer who walked away from prison and has been on the run for 40 years. From ABC Audio, it's Have You Seen This Man? Then twin brothers confront a secret from their past that only one of them can remember. We'll talk about Netflix's Tell Me Who I Am. Joining me to get that done and even more is my real-life husband and true crime co-author and Al to my Betty, Kevin Flynn. Hello, Kevin. Hello, my loyal subjects. (laughs) Welcome to you all. Welcome to you all. Are you doing your queen impression, getting ready for the-
3: It's Monday morning last night. The the crown dropped, so to speak.
2: And will we have watched the whole thing by the time this podcast comes out? Probably. (laughs) A new season dropped? Yeah, it's coming out. Yes, it's (gasps) out.
4: Oh, my God. Oh, my God. I'm so excited. Oh,
3: wow. Where's like, talk faster.
4: <laughs> I'm going to go watch it all tonight. I'm going to sleep. To
2: be fair, it hasn't come out tonight, technically. By the time this podcast drops, it will have come okay. out. This okay. is Wednesday. I believe it comes out Friday. Right, Kevin?
3: Yeah. Rebecca always sort of fails to grasp the idea of intimacy and immediacy <laughs> in podcasting and loves to remind people how we taped this so long ago.
2: It takes a long time to edit this podcast, Kevin. <laughs> I think people think that we're just doing it live to tape. We're not just that good. Just
3: live in their world for a minute. It's Monday morning.
2: Also, it's with us is- <laughs> also with us is journalist, true crime author, former defense investigator, licensed private investigator, and certified cat lady, Lara Bricker. Hello, Lara. Hello, Rebecca. And finally, our resident critic, the author behind the noir novels known as the City Trilogy, and our Patreon book club host, Toby Ball. Hello, Toby.
6: Aloha, Rebecca.
2: All right, before we start the show this week, something alarming happened on social media this week. What? Laura Bricker, hearkening back to last week's episode where I talked to Patient Zero host Taylor Quimby about Watchmen, and then we were talking a little bit about Patient Zero and what a great podcast that is. And then in response to that conversation, Laura Bricker shared on our social media a picture of maybe the worst tick bite I have ever seen on a human being. Laura Bricker, do you have Lyme disease? What is going on with you?
4: I don't. So I don't know if I shared it on social media, but I will. I'm fine with everybody seeing my giant tick bite. I think I sent it on Slack <laughs> oh, okay, sorry. to you guys, but it's okay because, yeah, so I woke up last Wednesday morning. I rolled over. I'm like, God, something's on my stomach. And I was like, Oh, it's a tick. And I pulled it off and I had this huge, like crazy reaction on my side. I totally panicked. I went to the walk-in clinic to get the life-saving doxycycline, which is what they give you. And then- I sent my tick out to get tested at the University of Massachusetts Amherst because they have a lab there, and you can send your tick right in. And it was, in fact, a deer tick, which is the disease-carrying tick. Yeah. And yeah, I know who just who just gasped, Toby. Oh my God! Yeah. I gasped. So, yeah. <laughs> so it says it says species black-legged deer tick, sex female, feeding state partially fed. Ooh. That's what it said. It could have fed on someone else. And then they give you the tests like I did. Thankfully, all my tests were negative. So it doesn't have Lyme. It doesn't have Lyme. It doesn't have hard tick relapsing fever, whatever that is. Some other thing I've never heard of and some other things I've never heard of. But it they tested for everything. So I was thankful it was all negative. But it was very, I mean, it's still this big giant thing on my side. So sometimes now I just lift my shirt up and show people because I'm like, Holy shit, you're not going to believe this big tick bite I got. It's
7: crazy. And
4: Ken, <laughs> Fireman Ken had no sympathy for this. He's like, um, let's go get dinner. It could be your last supper.
7: Right. And I'm like, <laughs> "True. thanks
2: a lot. <laughs> also, Laura Bricker, um, I don't know if you've actually listened to Patient Zero, but Kevin, you have, right? Yeah. How about those tests that Laura Bricker had? <laughs> Are they bad? <laughs> they might actually be bullshit. Yeah. <laughs> I'm just saying this. You might not be out of the woods, Laura Bricker, <gasps> but we'll be oh my with God. you. We'll we'll be there okay. with you for whatever happens. <laughs> okay. And Thank Taylor God. himself had Lyme disease, and he's fine now. He's fine. Okay. Did what, so? What's the wrong with the test? Now I need listen to listen to the podcast. Listen to the podcast. And then okay.
3: So to summarize, the crown is out, and Laura got bit <laughs> by a tick.
4: <laughs> <laughs> and also tonight, I won at Family Feud during my monthly Parrot Head meetup. So that congratulations, Laura
2: Bricker. We're thrilled. Toby, do you have any exciting life updates to share with us? Were you bitten by any insects or did you win any you random again? contests?
6: <laughs> uh, no, I went to a Celtics game. That was pretty fun. Ooh,
2: that is fun. Did they win?
6: Uh, They did.
2: Ooh, very exciting. We had really
6: good seats. It was for my nephew's birthday. I went with my son and my brother-in-law and my nephew.
2: Bunch of boys watching basketball.
6: I was the only person under 6'3 in our group. <laughs> and, uh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, so it was fun. And uh, I'm trying to think if there's any other exciting news. And I think the answer is no.
2: Well, this would be a good time to mention that uh, our listeners should subscribe to our Patreon, right, Kevin? That's yes. a natural segue. Uh, tonight on the Crime Writers and After Show, we're going to be talking about Lara Brickers being assigned a security detail for Mayor Pete Buttigieg presidential candidate and how that worked out we're also going to be talking about Lara's trip to key west and all the dead people she met there and we're also <laughs> going to be talking about an incredible unprecedented don't spoil it guys listener email we received from a famous person <gasps> oh, that was in yes. one of the podcasts we reviewed and kevin do you just want to tease a line so our listeners know what yeah. they'll be getting when they check into the after show this evening
3: not saying who it is but okay. this could be a good clue One of the things I have found most frustrating in all the coverage of what went down between us is that people
6: refer to it as a feud. (gasps) Sorry, Toby. <laughs> I'm glad it wasn't. I wrote, I'll always love you, motherfucker. <laughs>
2: I will say uh, the episode of Dolly Parton's America that dropped this week, that's the one latest one out, is so good. Toby may not like it, but the rest of you guys Dollar will tickets. love it. You should Dollar, check it. Dolla Ticks. Super duper good. But yes, no, it was not Dolly Parton, but it was somebody good who uh, was a character, a major character, in one of the podcasts we reviewed. And thankfully, I think it was a podcast we gave four thumbs up to, right? I think so. Mm -hmm. Okay. All right. Well, are you guys ready to start the podcast now? Yes, we are. Let's do it.
4: There was a murder in central Ohio that many people still don't want to talk about. The man who committed that crime once sat on death row, but now... He's on the run. His name is Lester
5: Eubanks.
2: ABC Audio's new podcast goes on the manhunt for a former death row convict who escaped from an Ohio prison in 1973. Lester Eubanks had been sentenced for the electric chair for murdering 14-year-old Mary Ellen Diener in 1965. But a Supreme Court commutation and a permissive prison rehabilitation program allowed the convict to go on a Christmas shopping outing from which he walked away.
4: Lester didn't tunnel out of prison or scale a stone wall. On a December morning in 1973, he and a small group of inmates were granted permission to walk outside prison walls. His handcuffs were taken off. He changed into civilian clothing. And he and three others were driven to a local mall.
2: Hosted by The View's Sunny Hostin and reported by ABC News senior investigative reporter Matthew Mosk, the podcast follows U.S. Marshals still hunting Eubanks, tracking his 45 years in hiding. Now we will be talking about spoilers and plot points through the first five episodes of Have You Seen This Man. To skip that part of the discussion, you can just go ahead to our thumbs up or thumbs down review. All right, Kevin, uh, this podcast is another podcast that we've listened to that has this format where it's like a dual host format. There's like the skin host that just does the intros and then the actual host who's doing the reporting. Uh, What do you think of this format and why do they keep doing this to us, these podcasting companies?
3: I can only guess... Um, but I do notice that it's labeled as season one. And I'm thinking that Matthew Mosk put in so much time reporting this, he probably hasn't also spent another two years doing season two. So, uh, Sonny seems to be the host that'll probably be introducing every season. And the actual, you know, on the ground reporters who have been chasing the story will probably do most of the heavy lifting as they have been doing in this season.
2: But you do have a comment also about Matthew Mosk's uh, vocal style in the podcast, which I would describe as laid back, regular. He almost sounds like a public radio person, right?
1: So Lester Eubanks grew up in Mansfield, Ohio, which is a town of 46,000 people. It sits almost exactly between Cleveland and Columbus, right in the middle. And that's sort of how the town feels, like a middle child, not a small town, not a big city either.
3: Yeah, and of course, you know, I'm winking that we would never talk about this for women because it's sexist, but I can talk about it for a guy. We
2: should talk about it for men on purpose because it's not sexist. I would say (laughs) that Matthew
3: doesn't have a traditional voice for radio, Mm -hmm. and I can say that as somebody who was told that by radio people that that I work for, for, and I don't have a voice. Yeah, that was great. Thanks for that 12 years of anxiety, but (laughs) whatever, eat a dick. I've got my own podcast
2: now. Um, <laughs> wow! Oh, my God. It's
6: all cool. coming out.
2: Kevin, I just want to remind but, you again, yeah. the In the Dark team listens to our show, and they just heard you say, eat a dick. FYI.
3: Well, I'm sure they're clutching their pearls. <laughs> <laughs> um, but but Matthew, but look, he's got a very natural delivery. He sound, it doesn't ever sound like he's reading anything. And he interacts very well with all the people that he's talking about. So sort of that, that raw tape of him just talking to people works without, we think, without a lot of editing because it's just very natural i think he's um it was definitely a good pick for this assignment
2: toby says this clearly seems like a podcast made by television people what do you mean by that toby
6: uh i i probably shouldn't have used the word clearly <laughs> 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 uh, clearly <laughs> i i kind of felt like it was the soundtrack to something that i should be looking at pictures ah, for yes. and then and then when they were segueing out of things, when we get back, we'll go to Marshall What's-His-Face. Yeah, so I, I don't know. It's That That was just the way it kind of came off to me. Like, when I was listening to it, it did kind of have that network TV feel to it. Some of it was the segues, probably. Some of it was, like, I wasn't too focused on this until the very end. But I don't know how much sort of scene setting they do through the storytelling part. Like, again, as though you might have a chance to, like, see footage or a photo or something.
2: Right. Now, Laura, I want to talk about really the incredibly horrific nature of this crime that Lester Eubanks was convicted for. This 1965 murder, it was like, what, a 14-year-old girl, and he attempted to sexually assault her and shot her twice and then returned later and smashed her head in with a brick. And I'm not saying any of this to be sensational. I'm saying it because it's in, it comes i think comes into play later in the story like this is the crime for which he was convicted and there's seems to be no disputing that he did it even his family is like oh no no we don't think he's not guilty like we know yeah. he did it um so can we just like talk about that and then just talk about the fact that like he got a sentence that you know i'm not you know we talked about the death penalty before in the show and it was commuted and that's fine but like The punishment he got and that was supposed to serve did actually
4: fit the crime that he actually did commit, it seems, right? Yeah. No, absolutely. Like this is one of those when you hear the description of this crime, and you know, it starts off, you know, I don't want to say run of the mill. But the part that really, I think, changes it in terms of making it just like so much more egregious is when you hear that he went back. She was still moving. She's moaning. So, you know, instead of going for help or doing something, you know, he smashes her over the head, which is just when you hear this you're like, "Oh my god." And it, it you know what, it, it just when I listen to this I'm like, this is like if you lived in that area, this is probably that crime that everybody knows about. That everybody still remembers, even though it happened, when was it? Like 1965, just because the details and the nature of what happened to this young girl were just so awful. But that's why when, you know, fast forward, um, and I, I, I'm going to fast forward over the part that I'm going to go crazy over the Christmas shopping, but fast forward to like his family and all these other people who are just like you know, no big deal. Yeah, we know what he did. He's here. We know he escaped. No big deal. And I'm like, what the fuck? Like, are you kidding me? Like, this wasn't just like you shot him once and they're dead kind of murder. This was like a long, sustained, horrible thing. And, um, you know, it's definitely something that I think, you know, in that area's history probably ranks up there with one of the worst things that happened. And probably after that, like we, you know, murders that have happened around me where there's been murders with young children. It's like, They changed the policies at the schools or like you remember if you were growing up, you were afraid to go to school after this happened. I mean, this is one of those things that really sticks with people. Now,
2: Toby, you, I know, and I, we've talked about this in the show before, all of us. Like we're all for, you know, criminal justice reform, prison reform programs, rehabilitative programs in prisons. We talked about that when we discussed Ear Hustle. We've talked about that. We've discussed other podcasts that don't have stories where the criminal justice system is uh, rehabilitative. But we have a situation here now where a guy who committed this crime was able to go to a mall unsupervised. Thoughts, Chubby Ball? <laughs> <laughs> no,
6: no Spencer's in prison. Um. <laughs> <laughs> it was a
2: strip mall. So there probably was no Spencer's, but I'm just
6: saying. That's disappointing. So they at least sort of hint at the possibility that people monkeyed around with his records, right, mm-hmm. to to make him eligible for that. So it seems like institutional failure rather than a policy issue. It doesn't seem like there's a policy. Well, you know, even if he's a life sentence, if he seems super nice, you can send him off to a mall. That being said, you would think people would know who that was. I mean, it's not like there's that many people on death row. And it seems like somebody should have been like, are we really sending this guy who horribly murdered a 14-year-old to a mall and letting him just run around? It kind of goes back to what Laura was talking about, which is it seems as though, because, again, it's sort of hinted that the father who, you know, had some kind of prison ministry thing going might have been able to pull some strings. And that sort of the family's, you know, circling the wagons, uh, despite what this guy's done, even after one of the brothers, I think, says that, you know— our dad, uh, he was one of those guys, if you messed up, you know, you had to pay the price for it. And it seems like it's the exact opposite in this particular case at least. It's like he's doing everything he can to to prevent his, his kid from paying the price.
2: Like, you know it's bad when I'm listening to this and I'm listening about the guy who did all the prison reforms and stuff, and I'm like like I'm on the side of that because we the data shows mm-hmm. that it works. The data shows that like you reduce recidivism by having you know, programs in prisons. The data shows your that, like, DT yeah, get more contact with your and, yeah, family sure, sure. and so yeah. forth. In
4: this one guy's case. <laughs>
3: <laughs> no, not just this one guy's case.
4: No, Rebecca, it's crazy. I was walking around listening to this and I'm like, do, 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 do. And then I'm like, wait a minute. Did they just say they're taking these people on shopping trips? Did they just say that they take people in the prison and let them go roam around and go home for the weekend and then come back to the prison without anybody supervising them? But the shopping trip thing, I was like, this is like, I mean, you don't do this with middle school kids. When you take them on a field trip on the bus, you have a buddy watching them. Like, what the fuck? They're like, hey, we'll see you later. Meet us back here at the appointed hour. Have a nice time. You know, I'm like... How is this even like possible? Like I listen to this, and then, and then I like re-listen. And I'm like, is this real? Did this really happen? Did somebody really think this was a good idea to just like send people out of the prison, and not just people like this is somebody who killed somebody.
2: Like, he was on death row. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I think it is important to underline that he ha- he was on death row a
4: relatively short time before this happened. Yes, and then they're like, oh well, now you've been upgraded. Now you can go on a shopping trip, like. Curtis Flowers couldn't even go to his damn mother's funeral for crying out loud. I mean, like, what is happening in this world?
3: I think it was too bad that the warden treated the penitentiary like a halfway house where, you know, certain people could have that kind of freedom. I think that these programs are important because the great majority of people who are incarcerated are going to rejoin us in society. And so that there should be opportunities to give them tools to succeed. Lester Eubanks was never leaving prison. Mm. So to extend such a privilege upon him certainly seemed misguided, certainly given you know, everything else we know. And to the extent of it, like, go ahead and just run off and meet me at two o'clock. I mean, I got to think, even like if you had taken a non-Syed to a strip mall and he ran away, I think even Robbie Achandri would be like, what the fuck did you think? Yeah. Right. Of course that's going to happen, you yeah, know?
6: Yeah. Nonviolent offenders, it's like a different story. Yeah. But sending violent offenders out there unsupervised, especially at a place where there's going to be a lot of kids.
3: So we're all in agreement that that was a dumb thing to do, right? Just so we're it's all on the record. Crazy. That was. <laughs> I would
6: I, I would like somebody to, to, to get on Facebook and, and make the case for letting him go. <laughs> yeah.
3: Well, he was, he'd always come back from the other Christmas uh, field trips.
2: I could say, so I have a bigger question. And I know we're in, like not getting into plot here much by me asking this question. When I was listening to this podcast and they were talking about Lester, I almost felt like I was hearing a story of two different people. So there's the guy who could drag a 14-year-old into an alley, attempt to forcibly rape her, and then shoot her twice and then come back later after changing his clothes to go dancing and murder her with a brick. And then there's the guy who becomes like an artist in prison and a painter. And then when after he escapes... Doesn't seem to re-offend.
3: As far as we know. Gets
2: a job at a waterbed factory, mentors a young boy, becomes like his second dad and like helps him stay out of trouble. He he behaves almost like an innocent person that's been sprung from prison, or at least that's, that's the information we have so far. Doesn't it seem like we're hearing about two separate people in
4: this? Am I the only one who thinks we're hearing about two separate people? No, I think it's hard to reconcile because that crime that's just so horrific, it's kind of hard to this guy who's like, I mean, his worst offense so far that we've heard about it. He wears like really awful cologne and gives people migraines with it. I mean, you know, but what's going on with that waterbed factory? I just have to say, like, they seem to have a lot of social outings. I was like, like, (laughs) I'm like listening to this. And she's like, he was never in the pictures, you know, because we went out for this occasion and that occasion. I'm like, there's a lot of camaraderie at that waterbed factory. But he was not involved in that. He didn't speak on the car ride. He just put his, like, cologne on went and did his job but I don't know what it was I just found that whole sort of dynamic kind of funny <laughs> I just kept I just kept thinking of the
2: office and Angela who ran the parties like in the <laughs> office and how they were like always having parties and like always having cakes and always having outings and always having whatever they're just like paper salespeople,
4: <laughs> a waterbed factory and but waterbeds were new so they couldn't be too they were all the rage right Kevin had yeah. a
2: waterbed in high school
4: by I the
3: way I did you probably put together by Victor probably <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, what I think is interesting is yeah, you know, after you escape and you're and you're older and whatnot, your behavior probably does change a little bit more deliberate because unlike when you haven't been arrested yet and you're you really haven't experienced the consequences, you might be a little more sloppy or more aggressive towards people, and so that I I definitely can see that if some people were to escape and they were able to logistically live in the world. That they would do so without reoffending.
2: Well, the data shows but, that that's true. Yeah. Once someone but, reaches their 30s, but, they don't reoffend.
3: But somebody who demonstrated sexual predilections and violence towards uh, children, I'm very surprised that that person would not reoffend. Mm. Now, we you know he could have and he just wasn't caught or whatever. And it wasn't like he robbed the bank.
2: So, you know what Toby's very part of the podcast was? No. When he calls that woman...
1: I called and left a message for his sister, Diana Burroughs. A few days later, she called back and left this message. Hi, this is Mrs. Burroughs, and I received a call from you requesting an interview about an article that you're going to write about my
3: brother, Lester, and I'm declining an interview and I would prefer that you never call me again. Thank you.
2: And uh, that woman says never to contact her again. And then he goes to her house.
1: Over the summer, I decided to swing by her house to see if she would reconsider or at least discuss her reasons for not talking in person. Hello. Hi, are you Mrs. Burroughs? I couldn't get close uh, enough for a full interview. I, left you, a message. Can I call you left you a message. That's her telling me to get off her property and never come back.
6: Thank you, Mrs. Burroughs.
2: That's Toby's very part of the podcast.
6: <laughs> that was hilarious because there was like, there was literally, there was no break. It was like, well, I, I got in touch with her. She said she wasn't interested and in never to call her again. So I went to her house to see if she'd have second thoughts and uh, she wouldn't open the door and she told me to go away and never come back. It's like, this is great. This is awesome.
3: So maybe if they spread that over like 15 minutes, came back to it later.
6: I, I mean, it's not even a criticism. It's just because uh, be quite honest. I didn't find this podcast very interesting but I thought that was that, that that gave me a chuckle
2: well did you appreciate the gumption of the reporter or did you appreciate the gumption of the witness it was like pound sand
6: I just it, just, yeah, it was just like a don't talk to me again. Never come here. So I swung by to see if she still felt that way.
2: <laughs>
6: you it's know, like, you go know, away. I don't want you here. My, oh, my, okay. Sorry. Sorry, ma'am.
2: My, my favorite part was when he's like, I called you and left you a message. And she's like, I called you and left you a message. And her message was basically like, leave me alone. It, was very, it actually was very funny.
3: Well, this is a good time to sort of pivot to this idea about, how the family plays into this episode. Yeah, what would you think about that, because, Kevin? <clears throat> well, um, at first, I was a little uncomfortable with sort of the innuendo that family members may have been involved in some way. Until they started but, telling
2: us they were involved. <laughs>
3: <laughs> yeah, I'd say Matthew brought the receipts on this, yeah. you know. Yeah, I mean, we do know that after he left, that he did wind up in Los Angeles at Kay Banks' house.
2: But the FBI showed up there too early to catch him?
3: Too early to catch
2: it, And up. they didn't stay around? What the fuck, They're FBI? Busy, busy
3: FBI people.
2: Ugh. And by so, the way, did Kate know the FBI was there the first? That's what My question was this. Did she know?
3: I think she said that, I haven't seen him or whatever.
2: Right. But then he did come and she yeah. wasn't like, dude, you can't stay here because the FBI was just here. Like what? That's like a missing piece there to me.
3: Uh, I don't know. I didn't live it. All right. Receipts yeah. about
2: the family. Keep going.
3: Yeah, so, I mean, without saying it's this one or that one, innuendo is okay if you can back it up. Maybe then it's not innuendo. Maybe I'm not using the right term. But I I think it's okay to sort of pose that question or definitely point towards the possibility of the unknown about that if you can demonstrate other things and other facts. And it isn't that the family knows but it's definitely that the family is not cooperating right. and won't help anybody find out.
2: Right. So I have a question for you, Kevin.
3: Yeah.
2: And I'm, I'm going to ask you to answer this honestly because I feel like my answer to this honestly would be different than my answer to this would be if I wanted to give the right answer. I'm giving i turn marks. you
3: in. Next question.
2: No, like if you had a cousin who yeah. committed a crime and everyone in your family knew he committed a crime, but you also like loved him and thought he was a good guy- like, you do know we've reported so many stories yeah. like this in our books. There is a conflict there, right? Yeah,
3: sure. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah.
2: I mean, there is. I mean, that is natural, except that this guy's crime was right. pretty fucking right. bad. But also,
3: there's also the dynamic within the family. Right. The cousin that gives him up is not coming to Thanksgiving. You know right. what I'm saying?
2: Yeah. Uh, Laura, do you just want to comment on Lester living in California under a fake name and becoming a mentor to this, like, young boy, K's son? Uh, who apparently the whole family knows exactly what happened, but they're still super cool with him being a mentor to this child. Yeah,
4: I found that kind of like, I'm like, what are we like normalizing deviancy here? Like, what is going on with this, this family? But I think the part about that that stuck with me, it just made me laugh was at the end when they're like, hey, if he's listening to this podcast right now, like, like what would you say to him?
1: And if he was listening to this, if he was still alive in the unlikely event, and he was listening to this, what would you... um? What would you want him to hear you say? What's up?
6: (laughs) Damn. (laughs) Hey, yeah, what's going
4: on? And I'm like, seriously? So it's like even after all this time and now there's a podcast being made and clearly you have more information. It's like it still doesn't register what this guy actually did to land himself in prison. You know what I mean? It was really
2: bizarre. Does anybody on this panel think that Lester Eubanks is still alive and out there? Yes.
6: I'm on the could be. I have the foggiest idea.
2: Yeah, me neither. I also, it's been a very long time. And I'm not, I'm not sure. I mean, Toby sent a note about, like, why now pursuing this? Like, what is the urgency? Like have there been more crimes? What's going on? Like, what is like, what are we doing? Toby, that was one of your notes, right? Like, why this? Why now?
6: Yeah, it just seems like if he's been out for 45 years and, you know, he hasn't come to the attention of law enforcement at all during that time, what's the urgency in finding him at this point? It would be nice. Like, I don't think you should just escape from prison and live the rest of your life. But in terms of priorities for what I assume is an overworked was it his marshal service or, or whatever? I, I just don't I don't understand why this would be a priority that they would put this guy on full-time.
3: Well, he's handling other cold cases, though.
6: Well, yeah. I thought they – don't they say at one point that he was put on this one case full-time? Could be.
2: Yeah. I mean, there has to be somebody. <laughs> I was like,
6: what? Yeah. My question would be, like, why, why are you allocating this amount of resources to this one case? And then also, why does ABC think this is a particularly interesting case – to follow, because I think once you get past the sort of outrage that he walked away from a strip mall where he was unsupervised, I I mean, at least for me, I didn't find the rest of it at all surprising or compelling or anything. It was just like, oh, and then this happened, and this person, and that person.
2: The one thing I did find surprising was when they revealed that they actually did have a record of him for a long period of time, and that they hadn't been caught. Like, that, to me, is the interesting part, but I feel like that was buried, like... So one of the episodes ends and it's like I am, as a listener, thinking like he's just in the wind. He's gone. The next episode begins and it's like we have work records. He had a different name. He was – maybe that wasn't like clearly like done with the exposition – but it was surprising to me that he actually was living a whole new life and had a record. But I kept thinking of um, there were so many Shawshank Redemption episodes in this podcast because the, epi- <laughs> the prison where he escaped from was the prison where they filmed yeah. the Shawshank Redemption. And I just kept thinking of like Andy Dufresne and Red on that beach in Mexico. And like if they had gotten jobs and if they had had identities and if they had whatever, like, Did you they know- check that beach? No, they didn't check that oh, beach. All, all right. right. Well, so why don't we do what we do and give our thumbs up or thumbs down review to this podcast Have you seen this man? (laughs) It always reminds me of uh, The Terminator. Have you seen this boy? Uh, From ABC Audio. Laura Bricker, I'm going to
4: start with you. Thumbs up or thumbs down? Do you think crime writers on listeners would like the show? Should they check it out? What do you think? Um, I'm going to say thumbs up. It wasn't my most favorite thing I ever listened to, but I'm going to say thumbs up because it's a good story in terms of how this guy got out. Episode two, if you listen to nothing else. Um, and you need some fuel for your rage walking, I would highly recommend that. Um, I think the later episodes did for me sort of drag a little bit, but it's an interesting story. It's um, produced well. They have a lot of good sources. And like I said, rage walking episode two. What about you, Toby Ball? Thumbs up or thumbs down for Have You Seen This Man?
6: I honestly have a hard time with this one. Um, And I I was going to mention that I think the last episode that just dropped... Is about this painting that they think that he might have done, and they're like, well, "Will we be able to get fingerprints or DNA or whatever?" Why does that even matter? Why are we spending all this time on this? Like, all you're going to know is that he was alive like six years ago, and how does that help anything? So that that's kind of indicative of the whole thing to me was it was a little bit like, "Why are we? Why are we spending time on this?" So you know, I'm a thumb sideways in that it's not bad, really, but I just didn't find it interesting. And there's so much other good stuff out there that I just can't imagine being like, oh, hey, you got to listen to this. Uh, but at the same time, it's well done. It does, it, you know, it checks off most of the boxes of things that we'd like to see in podcasts. I just don't think the story is very compelling and they don't bring anything extra to it, I don't think.
2: Uh, this is a tough one for me. Uh, I am a thumb sideways as well. Only because I think that what they're trying to do with the podcast formatically is taking away from how good it could be. Like, okay, so if a newspaper in a small town had put out this podcast, I would be a thumbs up. This is ABC News. Like, we don't need the lady from The View introducing and doing the continuity for this podcast. They should just be... Just go in straight with this other dude and be like, you're reporting the story. This is your podcast. We'll just figure out how to do season two later. Introduce at the top saying we have a different reporter in a different case. I think that they are, like Toby said, it sounds like TV people made it. I hear a lot of that stuff. And I don't think that's necessary anymore anymore. I also don't think it's forgivable anymore for an outlet like ABC to making those kinds of errors in audio. So I'm giving it a thumb sideways because it should be a lot better. There's a lot of good stuff here. The story is very interesting. I do like the idea of following a U.S. Marshall investigation of a missing fugitive. Like, that's a cool idea. Like, that's the fugitive, right? Yeah. So I like the idea of it. I think a lot of it is really, really good. I would take out all the sunny parts, all the television formatic. Parts. That's what's making it thumb sideways for me. But that's about it for me. What about you, Kevin?
3: I am a thumbs up. I do like the way this was put together. I appreciate all the journalism that went into it, the amount of time crisscrossing the country. It is a case that is kind of frustrating about how this guy gets away and about how people who probably could help bring the guy back in are reluctant to do so. I do appreciate like these kind of inside the investigation kind of stuff, as opposed to talking about it later, being embedded in the car when they're going to go do something. I think that that makes them somewhat unique. I like the access and I'm really interested to see if the podcast does result in a a change in the case, because this is one of those kinds of podcasts where that could be. One of the places I would have been looking for the guy would be, of course, under the covers uh-huh. of my Brooklyn and sheets. Oh yeah. Because yeah. once you hide there, yeah. you don't ever want to come out. No, never. Especially now that the weather is changing and it's cooler at night. You,
2: I have like the best Brooklyn story of all this week. You Can do. we just like do it? Sure. You and I <laughs> I dragged you. I've been trying to drag you for months to go mattress shopping, yeah. like for our bed, right? Yeah. So we went to the mattress store and like let on all these mattresses and they were like, don't you want to change the size of your bed? You have a queen. Don't you want a king now? And I was like, nope, <laughs> <laughs> because we have all these queen Brooklyn and sheets and we are not giving them up. We are sticking with a queen because I cannot give up these sheets, even if it meant six more inches of leg room. Right? Absolutely. <laughs> I can't give them up.
3: Rebecca's Brooklyn and sheets are the most comfortable sheets <laughs> that she's ever slept on.
2: We, we more will never get about, another size yeah, bed. We get more emails about Brooklyn and sheets probably than any other sponsor. Probably.
3: Hey, their towels are fantastic too. We can't recommend them any for friends, families, or treating yourself to the upgrade that you deserve. And now, Brooklynand.com is giving an exclusive offer. You get ten percent off and free shipping when you use the promo code. crime writers writers. at brooklinen.com.
2: And Brooklinen sheets and towels, they will make an incredible holiday gift for people that you love, people that you want to have sleep better or get more fluffy dryness when they get out of the shower. They really do make an incredible gift. You can check them out and see all the gift options at brooklinen.com.
3: Brooklinen is so confident in their product that all their sheets, comforters, and towels come with a lifetime warranty. And the only way to get ten percent off and free shipping is to use the promo code Crime Writers Crime writers. at Brooklynin. dot com b r o o k l i n e n dot com promo code Crime Writers Crime Writers Brooklynin. These are the best sheets ever. Ever.
2: What else you got, Kevin?
3: Well, there would be no need to take prisoners to a. Christmas shopping trip. Right. If they had uncommon goods back in the nineteen seventies. No kidding. It took you decades to get here, but we're glad you're here now.
2: That's right. Many of my favorite items in our house are from Uncommon Goods. That's right.
3: Lester Eubanks could have shopped for all of his family. That's right. Getting fantastic things from the unique website Uncommon Goods. You know, I, I just recently I'm talking I'm getting ready to give gifts. Yeah. But I got a gift from a secret admirer, and it came from Uncommon Goods.
2: Secret admirer? Yes, and it's right here. Oh, that's a good gift.
3: Yeah. This is, it's um, a, a jar. It's a little cocktail a jar. Cocktail jar. With some jar. infusing
2: spices and a straw. It's,
3: are, you, are you just going to step all over this? No. You're going to let me say my thing? It's my gift. I'm concise. With <laughs> a metal straw. It's the Agent Infused Parrot Strawberry Jalapeno Alcohol Infusion Kit. So there's instructions in here, and just... There's a you know, recipe. There's a little, it smells so good. Some
2: aromatics to throw yep. into your cocktail. And yeah. the egg even comes with the recipe and the vessel from which to drink your cocktail.
3: It's, it's a very clever gift for a guy. In fact, I am going to get another one for it. I'm not giving mine. I'm not regifting at all. No. But I am going to get this one for my brother-in-law because he doesn't listen and I can say it. I'm getting him the Blue Sunday, mm mm-hmm. uh, Blueberry Lavender Alcohol Infusion Kit. Yeah. That's the kind of guy he is.
2: I got a gift from Uncommon Goods last year. Remember that beautiful decanter for boxed wine bags that comes from Uncommon Goods? Oh, yes, they still have that on their site. I would recommend it. It is a beautiful, like, maple wood ball. You take the bag out of your boxed wine box, put it in there, and it gets like a beautiful decanter. It's amazing. It's
3: great gifts for just about everybody you know, unique things. And they donate a dollar for every purchase to good causes like paid family leave and fair living wages. Good for them. Uncommon Goods wants to help you discover your new favorite thing, just like I did. They're offering our listeners an exclusive deal. On your first purchase, go to uncommongoods.com slash crime Crime. to receive $5 off your first purchase. That's uncommongoods.com slash crime to receive $5 off your first purchase.
2: Moving on. Netflix's Tell Me Who I Am documents one man's quest for answers about his life. Answers his twin brother has refused to supply. Alex Lewis lost his memory in a motorcycle crash when he was just 18. And it was up to his twin brother Marcus to begin filling in the blanks about their family and their perhaps idyllic childhood.
5: I remember opening my eyes and looking around the room. I instantly recognized my twin brother and I just said, hello, Marcus.
2: Taking advantage of his brother's amnesia, Marcus chooses to withhold critical information from their past, believing that revisiting their childhood would be too painful for the both of them.
7: I, from day one, painted a picture of a normal family, but none of that was true. It was
5: a fantasy that I was creating for him. How could we have secrets? We don't have secrets. The one person that I absolutely trusted has betrayed me.
2: Alex insists on learning the whole story, however, and the film ends with the two sitting down to finally address the issues. Tell Me Who I Am poses tough questions about whether it's better to confront one's painful past or to remain blissfully ignorant of its destructive consequences. We are going to be talking about full on spoilers from Tell Me Who I Am. So to avoid them, skip ahead to our thumbs up or thumbs down review. Lara Bricker, you sent me a note. This is the most bizarre story reviewed in some time
4: Tell me what you mean by that. I don't even know where to start. The last one I was trying to think of that was this sort of bonkers in terms of like a family dynamic that was like WTF was abducted in plain sight. So this one, though, it's like you've got the two brothers. One has amnesia. One doesn't have amnesia. And the one brother is really almost like playing the role of God in terms of Uh, dispensing information about their childhood, but you know something is off. It's just, the whole thing is nuts because it's like you've got this setting, like they keep panning to the outside, like the B-roll footage of like the creepy English cottage manor house where they all live with their mummy and mummy and her big tall self and all the other stuff that's going on. And um, there's just a lot of really weird details and the family dynamics are, just it, it I don't even know. It's it's so crazy. Like I watched this and I kind of sat there afterwards like, huh. Alrighty then. Uh <laughs> I don't know about you guys, but it was just I, I couldn't even digest it. Yeah, Toby, you sent me the note that this starts very
2: intriguingly and then gets super dark super quickly. But what do you think of the situation? I mean, coming at it from like a literary fiction writer perspective, the idea that Alex is totally dependent on Marcus to fill stuff in and Marcus is spinning him this like idealized version of their childhood. What do you think about that, Toby?
6: I think it's great. You could write a ton of great thrillers with that as the premise. And I think that part of it is is really interesting. It reminded me of a movie called Proof. I don't know if you any, any of you guys saw it.
4: Is Gwyneth Paltrow in that
6: Oh, I think that was another one called Proof. Maybe I'm getting the name (laughs) wrong. Anyway, the one I'm talking about is about a a woman who's blind who goes around to places and she takes pictures where she goes. But basically, she gives the, the pictures to this person who then describes to her where she's been. And then he starts lying to her about some stuff that she gets in the pictures. So it's sort of similar in that way.
2: Except it's real.
6: Except that this is real. And the, the setup is, is is really good, and I think they also do a pretty good job of misdirection at the beginning in a way that doesn't feel like it's cheating, in that while the mother's the real monster, the dad isn't a real prize either, and that's more apparent to Alex, who's the one with the amnesia, because at that point the, the whole thing with the mom is, is is over as far as the sexual abuse goes. But the dad has got this furious temper and pounds on the table. They're not allowed to go places in the house. In the beginning, you think, oh, what fucked up thing is the dad doing? Uh, And that doesn't turn out to be the I mean, I'm sure he's doing fucked up things, but it's nothing compared to the mom.
2: Fun fact. I did a little bit of research about this family after watching this documentary. The dad is not really the dad. He was the stepdad. Mm hmm. And Alex and Marcus were not the only kids in this house. There was like an, at least one other what? sibling. No, two, two two other siblings? Yeah. yeah. I mean, yeah, there's a lot going on. It was a half
3: brother and half sister, I
2: believe. It was bananas. Kevin, there was a lot of suspense immediately in this documentary, yeah. right? The early suspense. I started watching this and I kind of thought, oh, this is like one of those things where... You kind of didn't know where it was going to go, but they definitely did a good job setting up that something was wrong and off. But the one thing, can I just say, that we didn't know as viewers, we didn't know that some of the suspense and drama would play out during the filming of this documentary. True. right? Right?
3: Yeah, see, I see this documentary more as a thinker and more as the kind of thing that you digest after it's over. And the things that you talk about aren't necessarily the ups and downs of the plot, but the question about what would you do if you were Marcus? Mm. Would you keep the secret and why? Would you tell him everything? Would you tell him half? And why? What are the consequences yeah. of this? And it, it opens up a larger discussion about what victimhood is. Not just who is a victim, but what does that mean? Does it mean that if you face the pain head on, and they say, yeah, go to therapy and work it out. What is that supposed to accomplish? That you get to a place where you're at, I'm using loose terms here, quote, at peace. Right. Or you, quote, come to terms with it or or whatever. If you're not actually it's dealing all, with the pain because you don't it's remember all, it. Right? It's all actual ways to move past the pain. Right. And as if it, as if the pain never existed. Right. And in this case, you're given a chance where the pain doesn't exist. It doesn't happen anywhere except on law and order. And here, in this or real in life- Or in
2: Homecoming.
3: Or in Homecoming.
2: <laughs> okay. That's what I kept thinking about yeah. the whole time we were watching. i like, this is the point of the Homecoming program. Make you forget your trauma so that we can get you to go back to battle, right?
3: Yeah, but it's just, that part of it is way more fascinating than, you know, the way it's shot, or and those are all good things to talk about, too. But the thing that we'll walk away mulling over is, did he make the right decision, and could he have kept it a secret the guy's entire life? That would that have been the best thing?
2: Right. I I will hit my hand. I think Marcus was trying to do something good here, right? I mean, I, I think we all agree he loves they love each other. Yeah. We learn that they still work together, that they're very close. And I think that the intentions are all good. The question is, even with good intentions, can you navigate something like this? Lara, what do you think about this whole way they sort of portrayed the mother, in particular, mummy with her giant hands and her giant feet And her uh, closet full of sex toys and all the pictures of her partying. Yeah. And like the setting of this very creepy, very jinx-like, like
4: Victorian manor that they lived in. There's a lot going on there, right? There was a lot going on. And I think what I I liked about how this was all set up was as you're learning about the family and as you're seeing pictures of mummy, sort of you are learning at the same sort of speed that Alex first learned the details about his family and his mother and his stepfather and where he lives.
5: I never thought this is odd because everything was normal for me. It was perfectly normal to have parents like we did. It was perfectly normal to live in a shed. So I was never questioning anything because what is normal, really? Normal is what you know, and normal is what your family is.
4: And so even though you know something's off, you're seeing how the family members are being portrayed, in particular the mummy character. And in the beginning, they're like, well, she was great fun and she was always doing things and this and that. And you're like, (laughs) but it still seemed a little strange. Like something just didn't feel quite right, even when they were describing her as having this great fun time and everything. It was very V.C. Andrews. Honestly, I kept thinking about V.C.
2: Andrews novels, Flowers in the Attic, My Sweet Audrina. It had that vibe. Um, Toby, what do you think about the the big questions this documentary is challenging the viewers to ask? What do you think those questions are?
6: Well, I think there's obviously, should uh, Marcus have told Alex earlier? Should he have told him when he did tell him? Uh, How should that have played out? For me, similarly, if not even bigger question is, should Alex have pushed Marcus to reveal it? Because it was pretty clear the emotional toll it was taking on him.
5: So I started to ask Marcus about our childhood.
6: He would say, you know, what family holidays
7: we go on? And I'd say, oh, you know, we would go to France on a beach holiday. Oh, right. Was that nice? Oh, yeah, it was great. You know, we used to go to the beach, we'd have an ice cream. You always like to have a chocolate flake in your ice cream. Oh, right. That's nice.
6: And then for Alex, you know, in some ways, it's kind of like reading a book because you're not, it's not as though he's, suffering from the trauma of it, it doesn't really, because he's forgotten it completely, it doesn't affect his life. So in some ways, I was like, why is why can't he let that go? Why do, is he forcing his brother to do this? And it ends up being, you know, when it happens, he says, you know, now I have you back or whatever. And then all just seemed kind of strange to me. That seemed like the selfish act was his sort of being so relentless about that, When the consequences to him seemed a lot less severe than the consequences uh, to Marcus.
2: Don't you kind of get it, though, Toby? Like, if you know that you don't know the truth about yourself and that someone's keeping it from you just because they think you can't handle it, don't you kind of get it? Like, you want to know? I mean, I kind of get it.
6: I would get it if that was actually the case. That he was really trying, he was trying to keep it from me because I, he didn't think I could handle. It. I'm like, oh, I can handle anything, but I think the reality was, and I and I think he was pretty open about it, is that Marcus couldn't handle bringing it back up, and so that that was that was the emotionally trying part of it was for him to have to dredge this thing up again, which he has sort of tamped down and spent a lot of emotional capital on knowing that he's he's been lying to Alex all this time
7: why would you feel it's necessary to give an emotionally disturbed 18-year-old information that he can't handle and is not necessary for him to know and if it was the other way around I would expect him I'd expect him to do the same I would want him to do the same I'd be angry if he hadn't done it and I do feel very passionately about that
6: so it just seemed to me that Alex at least should have been aware that this is what was going on. He should have been aware of the trauma that this was causing his brother. And in the end, what does it mean? You know, he, he he doesn't remember it. Whether he finds out or not, it's not like it's introducing trauma to him at this point. It's like, oh, shit, that happened to me? That's fucked up. But it seemed like it was more something he needed his brother to do so he could have a good relationship with his brother rather than anything about his sort of understanding himself better. At least that was, that was my interpretation of it. And I, and I kind of felt if he had been a little more compassionate, he might have realized the cost of his insisting on this and wondered if it, was, if it was really worth it.
3: I wonder if it was worse for Alex to know half the story because then he had just been driven all these other years by wanting to know the other half. Mm. And that ended up putting some additional pressure on Marcus because it's one thing to keep a secret when you don't know someone's keeping a secret. Alex had no reason to believe that Marcus was lying to him or protecting to him all those years. But then
4: he was able to figure it out. He did, he did eventually know that there were secrets. Once they found that creepy picture where they were naked and their heads were chopped off.
5: I started piecing things together. I started to realize that her whole life evolved around sex.
3: But then now Marcus is like, he's actively keeping a secret. He's, right. He,
2: I'm not going to tell you.
3: Yeah. Ali, yeah. He's, he's now he's withholding information. And, you know, I think that that play with Alex's head. It's almost as if everything came out all at once, that the way that they would process it all would be different because now Marcus did his best to protect Alex from those memories. But at the point there was, you know, you couldn't protect him any longer. Everything was just all all dirty anyways.
4: I guess my question is, though, even once he tells him the memories, like he's still got amnesia. So he's still it's not like it's going to suddenly trigger some big like recognition and like moment of clarity and it's all going to come into place. So I think I'd have a hard time processing it still because it would still see, seem like one step removed because I still don't have that direct personal memory of the event. Does that make sense?
6: It feels to me like something if somebody was like, oh, this happened to you when you were one. Like when you were living here, this thing happened and you were one. It's like, oh, huh. But, it, you know, it doesn't doesn't have any resonance with my life now. And I assume it would be the same way for Alex. And you can tell at the end there. there's two brothers, one of whom is completely psychologically broken down and the other of whom it's like, oh, well, you know, now we're back together or whatever.
2: Toby, what do you think about the fact that they had the most fraught conversation they've ever had in their lives on camera for this documentary?
6: That is nuts. It's hard for me to put myself in, in their place because I just can't imagine wanting to do that. I, I'd be interested in reading more about the making of this thing, uh, how they found these guys, how they negotiated this happening, why, I guess, their siblings or half-siblings or whatever didn't participate. It, it seems like there's a meta story here that, that's probably pretty interesting, but it's it's a tough watch, man. It's It gets super, super, super dark, and... I don't know. I kind of felt bad for Marcus because I felt like at all times he was trying to protect Alex. And I kind of felt like Alex didn't have the insight to understand the toll that it was taking on Marcus to do that and to appreciate it. I don't feel like he seems super resentful.
2: I don't think he has the capacity, Toby. I think part of him is still damaged from the brain injury. It,
6: it, and that that totally could be. They don't talk about it like that. But I, I kind of felt like that was, at the end, I was kind of thinking if Alex had the same sort of level of compassion that Marcus did, like, I think things would have been a little bit different. Um It's a compelling but tough watch.
2: All right. Well, there's a lot of conundrums here. I think we should do what we do and let our listeners know. Thumbs up or thumbs down? Should they check out Tell Me Who I Am on Netflix? A very unusual documentary. A tough watch, but certainly an interesting one and certainly quite true crime adjacent. Laura Bricker, what do you think? Thumbs up or thumbs down for Tell Me Who I Am?
4: Um, I'm going to go with thumbs up. Just, It's a really unusual story. It's a really unusual situation that happened with these identical twin brothers. And the family background and sort of the mystery of the brother, in this case, who has amnesia, is told in a way that is very compelling, but it's very difficult to watch. Um, So, I mean, I'm going to give it a thumbs up, but I would say, like, it wasn't something that I really was, like, relishing watching because it was pretty depressing to listen to um, the backstory that went into this. But at the same time, it's a really unique story. So I'd say give it a watch. What about you, Toby Ball? Thumbs up or thumbs down for Tell Me Who I Am
2: on Netflix?
6: I think it's going to be sort of an unusual thumbs up, but I'm not sure if I would recommend it for people huh. uh, necessarily. I mean, I think it's it's good. Uh, it brings up some really interesting questions. But I think the caveat is, is that it is just really really dark. And so unless you're ready for that, I wouldn't watch it. I, it's one of the darkest things I think we've we've reviewed. But if you feel like you're ready to take that on, this the story is certainly interesting and there's certainly stuff to think about. So, yeah, take that for what it is.
2: Yeah, I'm giving it a thumbs up, too. Uh, I think that I like to think of this documentary as a standalone thing, like ignore the fact that there's a book, ignore the fact that there's other stuff, just the documentary by itself. It's really gothic. Like, there's a very, like, strong, like, gothic feel to it. Very sort of V.C. Andrews, very sort of, like, reminding me a lot of, like, the old timey British Scottish Highlands, like, mysteries I love reading. Uh, but, uh, yeah, it's dark, but it's set up really well. It's beautifully made. The brothers are compelling. The reenactments are tasteful. And the way that they unspool the story is kind of fascinating. So I'm going to give a thumbs up to tell me who I am on Netflix. What about you, Kevin?
3: I'm also a thumbs up. I think that this is uh, one of the more intriguing documentaries that we've looked at. The When you get to the end of it, the story is uh, is. Dark, but not without as many twists and turns as you might expect. But the real takeaway here is the larger discussion about what it means to be a victim, and about the you know decisions that particularly Marcus made to protect his brother. And you know, I don't want to spoil anything again, but it's just the kind of thing that you know will really make you wonder about uh, what is in the best interest of people, and if you're given a special opportunity. Or you could wipe away somebody's mind and take away their pain on something if you would do that and what those consequences might be.
2: It's like eternal sunshine of the spotless mind in that way. It is. But it is. real. Yeah. But
3: real. And speaking of forgetting things, sometimes you just don't want to change the cat litter.
2: That's true. Sometimes you don't want to change yes. a cat litter. You
3: just don't want Or to. sometimes
2: you forget. You
3: forget to buy new cat litter. Yes. Yeah, well, that's where pretty litter comes in. They can deliver odorless litter right to your door. It's kitty litter reinvented. Unlike traditional litter, pretty litter's super light crystals trap odor and release moisture, resulting in dry, low-maintenance litter that doesn't smell. Laura right? it just clumps in a different way than a regular litter, right?
4: It doesn't clump traditionally. Like So, like, the pee doesn't really clump. You just stir it up and it kind of evaporates um, and then you just scoop the poop so it's a lot less scooping so a lot less for me uh, heading down back to dump the poop or whatever in the compost pile.
3: And remember that the litter will actually change color if there's an anomaly or a health issue with your cat because uh, it detects certain enzymes and special things that uh, will give you a heads up before you go to the vet or let you know that maybe your tabbing needs to be attended to. You can't change the weather, but you can change your kitty litter. Make the switch today. Go to prettylitter.com and use promo code crime. Crime. For 20% off your first order, that's prettylitter.com, promo code crime.
2: Crime. What else you got, Kevin?
3: Uh, I don't know. What do you have, Rebecca?
2: Well, too much screen time, Kevin, can result in tired, dry eyes, headaches, blurry vision, and trouble sleeping. Tell me about it. Listen, I look at screens all day. I'm looking at screens right now in the studio. I was working for 12 hours today before I got here. You know how I protect my eyes from all those screens?
3: Felix Grey glasses. That's
2: right. Felix Grey glasses filter out 90% of high-energy blue light and eliminate 99% of the harsh glare coming from screens. Unlike other brands who use cheap blue light coatings that are ineffective and can chip or scratch, Felix Grey uses a proprietary blue light technology that's embedded directly in the lenses. Available in prescription, non-prescription, and readers, Felix Grey has you covered with optical glasses for work and sleep glasses in the evening that are clinically proven to increase melatonin secretion. When worn before bedtime. I gotta tell you, Kevin, that sounds pretty good to me. This white light, blue light situation before bedtime are no good. You
3: can get them in prescription too. Which That's is right. Yeah.
2: Felix Gray makes the best blue light glasses in the game. Go to Felix Gray slash crime and get a pair of blue light glasses from the pros. Shipping and returns are totally free. That's F-E-L-I-X-G-R-A-Y glasses dot com crime. Crime. FelixGreyGlasses.com slash crime.
3: What else do I have, Rebecca?
2: What else do you have, Kevin?
3: (laughs) The book The Suspect is a masterful true crime narrative of the 1996 Centennial Olympic Park bombing, and the heroic security guard turned suspect at the heart of it all. A rich, character-driven narrative filled with themes and topics that are more relevant today than ever. It's a page-turner centered on the intertwined lives of Richard Jewell, the reporter who broke the story, And the FBI who made the case that wasn't. The suspect reconstructs all the events leading up to, during, and after the Olympic bombing, from mountains of law enforcement evidence to the extensive personal records of key players, including Richard himself. This book is the culmination of more than five years of reporting, a gripping story of the rise of domestic terrorism in America, and the advent of the 24-7 news cycle, and an innocent man's fight to clear his name. It's being published ahead of a soon-to-be-released film, Richard Jewell, Directed by Clint Eastwood and featuring an all-star cast. But the book is always better, right? Totally. As crime writers, we would say. That's right. The book is always better. The suspect is available wherever books are sold and at thesuspectbook.com.
2: Now it's time for my favorite part of the podcast, a little something I like to call the crime, crime of the week. Of the week. Forget the dogs. Who let the cats out? The Friends for Life Animal Shelter in Houston has been dealing with a series of security breaches. A six-year-old feline named Quilty has been getting out of his enclosure, repeatedly. Officials say Quilty gets out several times a day, but it doesn't stop there. At night, Quilty is breaking out the rest of the cats, too. Each morning, the staff has to wrangle all the loose kitties sprung by Quilty, the staff had no other choice but to put the top cat in solitary confinement. Mm. Boo! Quilty's antics have gone viral. The shelter's post got sixteen thousand shares, and they're now selling Quilty-themed merchandise. And the spate of breakouts may soon end because Quilty has spent the past week with a potential adopter. Oh, Yay! That's nice. So, panel, here's Hope they my have
3: question.
2: Padlocks. <laughs> panel, here's my question for you. We believe the bad tabby had his own reasons for springing out all his friends. What was he really planning? Laura
4: Bricker, what do you think? Clearly, they were planning a visit to my house to see me.
2: <laughs>
4: <laughs> Probably. Toby Ball, why do you think this bad tabby was bringing out
2: all of his friends? What did he have planned?
6: Uh, ladies' night at the Pretty Litter Factory.
2: <laughs> <laughs> what about you, Kevin? What do you think all these uh, quilty plans, had in mind.
3: I think they were getting together to make a band like the Aristocats, (laughs) and they needed four or five of them to climb up on the big stand-up base.
2: I was going to say they were getting together to make the trailer for the worst-looking movie ever released, the movie version of Cats.
3: Looks like they already did that.
2: (laughs) All right. We should probably end on on that note, but before we do, Laura
4: Bricker, do we have a cat of the week this week? (laughs) We don't have a cat. We have something that rhymes with cat called rat.
2: (laughs) What? (laughs) Rat of the week? A rat of the week. That's a first. We've been doing this show for like five years. We've never had a rat.
4: (laughs) I know, but it was so good I had to do it. So it comes from Erin Lacey, who goes under the Twitter name Mom of Many, and sent a picture. I give you my entry for Rat of the Week. Rexy the rat shows no fear of Remy, who's a dog, despite Remy's repeated attempts to eat her. She oh. actually hits wow. the cage bars with her hands to attract a terrier? <laughs> Remy's attention. No, it looks like some sort of a lab cross, and doesn't back away at the teeth. Rexy is one hundred percent badass. Nice. Yeah. Well, our Bricker folks want to reach out to
2: you to figure out how they can send you their nominees for cat of the week or dog of the week or rat of the week for this segment <laughs> of the show. How can they find you online?
4: At Laura Bricker
2: and Toby Ball. Folks want to reach out to you to say. Hey Toby Ball, how can they find you on Twitter?
6: At Toby Ball N H.
2: Kevin Flynn, what are your deets?
6: I'm at Kevin P Flynn.
2: And if you want to follow me on Twitter or Instagram, you can find me at Reb Lavoie. You can also follow the show on Twitter at Crime on, and I encourage you to join the amazing community in our official Crime Writers On Facebook discussion group. We also have a regular old Facebook page, but that's boring. Support the show on (laughs) Patreon.com slash Partners in Crime Media and you'll get the Crime Writers on After Show, a brand new episode of Married with Podcast, Toby Ball's Deep Dive Book Club Podcast, and Laura Bricker's amazing Leave it to Bricker Podcast. Our theme song was performed by the New York Sky Jazz Ensemble and used with permission. Line editing for the show is done by the very handsome Henry Lavoie. And a very special welcome this week to a brand new member of our Partners in Crime Media team, longtime listener and social media pro, Meredith Plunkett is helping us out on the socials with our newsletter and our marketing. Welcome, Meredith! You can subscribe to our newsletter at CrimeWritersOn.com. This show was recorded in the yoga loft above the bodega in Bay St. Louis, Mississippi, studio, formerly known as Studio C, the closet in our basement where Kevin also escapes when it's time to go Christmas shopping. On behalf of all the Crime Writers, thanks so much for listening. We will catch you... Later. Later. Henry, it's okay to turn this into a usable thing that doesn't include my political opinions.
4: Yeah,
2: no, it's all cool. I like Um, how we
6: talk to future Henry now.
2: By the way, yes, communicating with Henry through this podcast, you know what he said? Do you know what Henry said to me last week? (laughs) What did Henry say? When he finished (laughs) editing the episode, he was like, that was a really good episode. And I was like- thanks, Henry. He's like, no, it was really good. Like, I like the way you talked about Watchmen. I really like the part with Taylor. I really thought your, like, analysis was really good. It's a really good episode. And I'm like, fuck you. Clearly, (laughs) this is the second episode. (laughs) Don't listen to our podcast. You're comparing this episode and calling it good because this is only the second one you've ever listened to.
6: The other one clearly sucked. Anyway,
2: do you have anything you would like to say to Henry while we're, uh, Pre recording here? I don't yeah, know. I hope,
6: I hope your semester's going well. <laughs> yeah. Stick to your studies.
2: <laughs> don't get VD. <laughs>